I often listen to podcasts when I'm in the car by myself, and I have a variety of different ones that I like to listen to, but I don't have a particular order or priority for my selection of podcasts, so whenever one ends, another one just comes up in the line, often surprising me because I don't know what's next on my playlist. This week, after I finished listening to an episode of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, one that's fairly frequent in my podcast rotation, the next one that popped up was from a series I hadn't listened to in a long time called In Search Of, a podcast from the Christian Century magazine hosted by Amy Frycomb, a writer, scholar, and senior editor at the Century magazine. It's a podcast that describes itself as, quote, going in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. Now, you might think that would be right up my alley, and it is, but the rest of the story is that at that moment, I wasn't super excited for voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. Sometimes I actually like to think about other things, especially driving in the car, So when this came up, I decided, okay, I would listen to a little bit, but I was ready to push the skip button. Except, wouldn't you know, didn't take long before I found myself getting really interested in the speaker and the topic. This episode under the broader theme of searching for truth was about searching for truth in interreligious conversation and featured a conversation between the host, Frycomb, and her guest, professor and theologian, John Thetominal, who teaches at Union Theological Seminary in New York, with a focus on classes in comparative theology, religious diversity, and Hindu-Christian dialogue, among other things. Okay, so an expert on the hot topic of comparative theology. You're excited already, right? Well, stay with me for a moment. Comparative theology involves looking at the theology of different religious traditions and setting those ideas and values alongside each other with the expectation that there is enough in common but also enough different in the background ideas, culture, and focus of different religious traditions that those people who practice, and we might also say believe in, these different religions can gain significant and important insights from each other through dialogue, for example. But, and this takes it a step further, An individual of one religious tradition might also find their own religious experience and practice enhanced by delving into another religious tradition alongside their own primary faith tradition. It is anticipated by people who lean into comparative theology that in the engagement with other ideas and beliefs, we might find something in the other that clarifies and enhances our own closest faith, ideas, and practices. So people of different religious traditions might not only talk about their differing religions and religious practices, but they might also engage 
in religious practices outside their own faith tradition, alongside their own faith tradition, and this is meant to expand and enhance one's faith. The headline quote from Professor Thetaminol for this podcast interview was this. If I'm truly, as a Christian, to affirm that core affirmation that God did, in fact, so love the world, then divine disclosure must be happening beyond the boundaries of the Christian tradition. If that's true, then how God engages in self-disclosure under different vocabularies, under different practices, under different modes of being must matter. From within that perspective, Professor Thetaminal, who is a Christian and who is Indian in cultural background, so is already backgrounded in a culture with significant religious pluralism and religious multiculturalism, describes himself as someone who engages in, quote, multiple religious participations. Because, he says, while he is really truly at home within the Eucharistic life of the Christian church, he's an Episcopalian, he supplements that with his Buddhist practices. Oh boy. For Christians who believe in the exclusive claim of Christianity, the one way, the only way to God, that's a big problem. You start playing with the fixed boundaries of faith and faithfulness through conversation, much less exploration, and can easily lead to this sort of dangerous mixing or merging of faiths. There's a word for that. The word is syncretism, which means the combining of different religions. And an exclusivist view of religion and religious faithfulness cannot tolerate that. The podcast host pointed that out. The opposition that some of the religious faithful have towards syncretism, the combining of religions, the Tomino's willingness to merge his Christian faith with Buddhist practices, she observed, raises red flags for some people, especially on the Christian side of the fence. The Tomino's response, mischievously offered, he said, was this. I often ask people, why is it that being a Buddhist Christian is often flagged as the problem when being a capitalist Christian is not. He continued, I say that playfully, but I mean that rather seriously. Let's say that to be religious is a matter of what one does with one's desires. To what do I give my heart? Well, truth be told, there's never been a more effective way of disciplining the heart invented in the history of human religiousness than the market. Your pastor, he says, he says, I'm not saying this. <laughs> Your pastor, he says, has maybe 15 minutes for a sermon and perhaps an hour-long service to begin to shape your desires in a Christ-like direction. But the market has you during all your waking hours. And even while you sleep, 
You dream capitalist dreams. The way in which many of us have been taught and shaped to advertise ourselves, to regard oneself as the product, the way in which our desiring is comprehensively captured by the therapeutic regime of market desiring, you know, that shopping therapy, that should count as syncretic, the combining of two religions, so to speak, capitalism and Christianity. And then he hits it kind of hard. Combining capitalism with Christianity is fundamentally incompatible, he says. One is about serving others in love, and the other is fundamentally about making yourself into an acquisitive consumer. I would say, he goes on, that it is ironic that that kind of syncretism apparently does not raise any red flags, but the far more nuanced business of working to address egoistic desires, which is fundamentally a shared concern of both Christianity and Buddhism, that that gets to be regarded as problematic. I also tell my students, he continues, that the only time that Jesus objected to any kind of syncretic life, the combining of core passions and beliefs and loyalties, was with respect to those who attempt to worship both God and mammon. He doesn't say to the Roman centurion and to the Samaritans and to all sorts of boundary figures whom he encounters, now you've got to be a good Jew, you see, before I'm going to be able to address your religious needs. He doesn't make that claim, but he does make the claim emphatically that you cannot simultaneously worship God and mammon. But, the professor concludes, most American Christians are quite fine with that that is, worshiping God and mammon. And I'm not wagging the finger, he says. This is true for me as well. Capitalist Christians. We might agree with the professor that those two words don't go together, aren't beliefs or commitments that should be combined, and yet we park them alongside each other as if there's nothing wrong with it at all. Jesus says you can't serve God and money, and we go merrily on our way, keeping our Christ priorities close and our checkbooks closer. The scripture for today has some things in it that seem easy enough, comfortable enough, familiar enough, but then it also has some things that seem kind of crazy or maybe unreasonable, at least for capitalist Christians. Familiar and comfortable are the practices of the early church of being together, eating together, praying together. But then there's this part. They had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. What do you think about that? What do you think about such a radical breaking down of the division between personal property and communal need? Such a radical breaking down of the categories of earning and giving, of possessing and sharing. Apparently, there were no capitalist Christians there in the early church. In the midweek update this past week, as we three pastors were talking a bit in the direction of today's scripture, Pastor Amy mentioned how satisfying it can be to borrow and share what is needed between us. 
She mentioned as an example that she has a red hand truck that she doesn't often use, but that any of us could borrow if we were to need it. I didn't ask the conditions of borrowing. I assumed it's in her garage. Well, now I know that she takes it around with her wherever she goes. But when it's in her garage, perhaps she will, see, will leave the garage unlocked for convenience sake. Because when I start moving boxes of books out of my office at the end of July, I may very well need that red hand truck. But she didn't say that I can have it, only that I can borrow it. And I'm pretty sure that she's not going to sell her red hand truck and I my books so that we can pool our money for any who have need, as the scripture says. We may share with each other, but ownership is still a powerful thing. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Amy would be happy to sell her red hand truck and give the money to those in need. And maybe what I should do is sell my books and do the same. I'm not saying that we wouldn't, only that doing so would represent a departure from our default positions. We, all of us, we work, we earn, we purchase, we use, we hold on. And then after spring cleanup or the summertime town-wide yard sale or a couple of trips to the thrift shop, we start all over again. And being consumers and people who acquire things and own things doesn't mean that we aren't inclined to share. It's just that we primarily see ourselves as separate from each other in terms of responsibilities, in terms of resources. Give something away, fine, so long as we can decide what and how much and to whom. But here's another thing. Even when we do release our resources for the good of the community, it's such a foreign thing to us, such a strange thing that we don't quite know how to travel in the strange land of such release. The freedom of being free of our possessions or even our need to possess is often strange and uncomfortable. I gave a significant amount of money to a friend recently who was going through a rough patch. No strings, no judgment, no expectation of return of that resource. I thought it would be helpful, but because it was one-to-one, -one, now something has shifted in the relationship. I don't think of that person as needy, but I get the feeling that that person thinks that I think of them as needy. In trying to be helpful and generous in an individual-to-individual -individual way, I think I may have lost a friend. The early church perhaps understood not only the dynamic, but the benefit and the necessity of doing our sharing in and through community better than we understand that. Maybe it was easier in their culture, or maybe they all just lived closer to the edge of viability so that no one was fixed into the category of well-to-do while someone else was fixed into the category of down and out. 
Maybe they all knew what it was like to be up and then down. And no one took for granted their individual security. That is, maybe they really did corporately have to rely on each other and trust each other. If your church family wasn't going to look out for you, then who was? I talked last week about my wondering after the darkest times of our separation during COVID when we couldn't meet together, whether we would recognize each other when we finally came back together. Would we remember how to be back together face to face? Would we remember each other, recognize each other, know each other? I wondered about that, I told you, because being apart was traumatizing. People we loved declined and some died. We missed milestones in each other's lives. We got out of practice at reading each other's faces. Would the being together come back to us? This past week, I got one more of my answers to that question. Of course, we've been back to Sunday worship for a long time now, but this past Wednesday, we had our first pastor's lunch with our church members at Timbercrest since we stopped several years ago because of COVID. Three years without those special luncheons, and finally, we were back together. And it was delightful. We picked up where we left off. Even with the people at the tables talking about how you need to get there early if you want to trade for the right kind of salad dressing (laughs) or the best kind of pie. It reminded me that we are made for being together. It's not a chore, it's not a sacrifice. We are made for being together. And because of that, we are also made for being for each other. We look at the early church and their sharing of things in common and we may immediately think sacrifice. Or we may think through the lens of our capitalist Christian perspective, reluctance. But what if we just turn it completely on its head and think instead of the privilege and the delight of being for each other? My table mates at the Timbercrest Pastors Lunch aren't forced to give me the piece of pie that they aren't going to eat. They want to. Not that I need it, but you get my point. We are made to be in community. We are made to share. We are made to support and uphold one another. Things in common feels pretty good because we are made to be for each other. Now, if only we would do it not out of obligation, but with joy. Amen.